Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, no matter who you are, everyone prays in crisis. Even those who normally don't think there's someone on the other end of the line. Whether we look at ourselves in the mirror, we don't like what we see and we feel the urgency to change. Or we see where we are and we feel the need to get out. Whenever we're in trouble, we feel the urgency to pray. And I love how Jim Gaffigan, a comedian, elaborates on this. So let's watch together. Some people think it's religious. Oh, you have all those kids for religious reasons. That's not how it works. If anything, you have four or five kids and then you become religious. (laughs) Because once you lose a kid at the mall, you know, atheist or not, you start talking to God right away. Hey, God, I know I haven't talked in a while, probably since finals in high school. Anyway, if you could help me find my son, I promise I'll change my life. I'll stop going to Wendy's. Oh, there he is. Never mind, God. (laughs) Well, we're off to Wendy's. Do, 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 do. Talk to you when I get cancer. Do, 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 do. Because that's how it works, right? We really only reach out when we have a crisis. That's got to be annoying for God. He's got to be like, well, well, well. Someone gets the big C and they turn into Billy Graham all of a sudden. I seem to remember when you were in college, I didn't exist. But now you're Cherry Cathy. A joke that combines cancer and religion. Always a crowd pleaser. (laughs) Always a crowd pleaser. Well, here's the deal. Nothing, <laughs> nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. Trouble has that uncanny ability, like Jim Gaffigan said, in making the most quiet among us 
into chatty Cathy's. You know, this past Thursday, um, I had the wonderful privilege of seeing my second child, my son, Israel Jude Coyle, eight pounds, eight ounces, 21 inches long. Yeah, I'm a dad. I've got to show a picture, right? Look at that guy. He's one good looking dude. And when I held him for the first time, I had this overwhelming sense of gratitude, but then also terror. (laughs) And I remember one of the first prayers in the back of my mind was, oh God, help me to love this boy one small pinch as much as you do. Why do we do that? When we find ourselves in crisis or trouble, you see, prayer is one of the most common human phenomena that crosses cultures, it crosses religious boundaries. And when we're in trouble, there's something about trouble that makes a beautiful catalyst of reminding us how frail we are as human beings. Nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. That doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? <laughs> you know, aren't we supposed to go praying to God because we want to thank Him for what He's already done? Aren't we supposed to go to prayer? to God asking just for more of him. If we go to him in crisis, have we missed the boat on what prayer is all about? Not quite, not quite. Last week, we began a journey and looking in the book of Psalms and seeing how they now formulate and craft our prayers. And we began with Psalm 1 and 2, the gateway really to understanding the Psalms. Although they aren't prayers themselves, they show us the crucial role that God's word plays in our prayer lives. And today we continue the conversation of understanding how Psalms informs our prayers, and we're going to see how trouble, trouble is the crucible that gives us the necessary heart condition for prayer. Trouble is the crucible that gives us the necessary heart condition for prayer. You see, it's not a coincidence that the very first line of the very first prayer in a book of prayers that has guided God's people on how to pray for millennia is nothing less than an urgent, personal, direct, dire plea in the midst of trouble. And you know, that reminds me of how Eugene Peterson, one theologian, summarizes prayer when he says, prayer is the language of the people who are in trouble and who know it and who believe or hope that God can get them out. There's something so inviting about that, isn't there? Something so simple, so childlike, so unpretentious. You know, one of the first sounds my son made when he entered this world, I'll never forget it, it was music to my ears, was when he gave this loud, screeching cry. And it was very natural for him to make this cry. He went from familiar to unfamiliar, from darkness to light, from warmth to cold. And everybody, when he cried out, when he came out of the womb, said, that's healthy. That's appropriate. His physiology is doing what it should be doing. And it's no coincidence that every human language begins with a cry. And so when we come to prayer, it shouldn't surprise us that the language of prayer is no different. And don't get me wrong, no matter how comfy your life may feel this morning, no matter how cozy you think and how perfectly aligned everything is in your to-do list, you're in trouble. We're all in trouble. And like people who are asleep in a burning building, those who don't know they're in trouble are actually in the worst of it. So if you want to learn how to pray, 
than go looking for trouble. (laughs) And I can promise you, you won't have to look very far to find it. Now, someone who found trouble just as often as it found him was a guy by the name of King David, the shepherd gone celebrity who became the most well-known king of Israel's history. And far too often when we come to the Psalms, we can forget that each one of these prayers was written within a context, written within a story. Many of the Psalms, we don't know the story in which they're written, but this one, Psalm 3, we do. And right at the beginning here, right up above verse 1, you find what's called a superscription. It's what kind of describes and gives you the context for what this prayer is and where this prayer came from. And it reads, in all caps, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, right from the the get-go, I think one of the first things that struck me was that the first prayer that's prayed in a book of prayers... It isn't prayed by a priest. It isn't prayed by a pastor. It isn't prayed by a prophet or even a well-known sage. He's someone we can relate to, David. Of course he was a king. Okay, we can't relate to everything. But he lived a majority of his life in the sacred ordinary, what we far too often mistakenly call secular. And he's on the run from his own son. So what happened here? Well, David, long before this, had spent those early days holding his son Absalom right after he was born, calming his initial cries, excited about what God was going to do through his progeny and furthering his kingdom and carrying out Israel's, as God's designed kingdom to now proclaim the good news of what God is doing. But years passed, decades passed, and David was absent far too often when he should have been present. You think your family's got it rough. I mean, David's family was like Jerry Springer bad. It's it's got one of those components where you say, at least I'm not that guy. And his very son, the one he gave his life to, is seeking to take his life, to take his throne, to take his kingdom. Absalom. He'd overtaken Jerusalem at this point the center of Israel, the place where the throne is. And he'd won the hearts of a majority of Israel and even the hearts of some of David's closest advisors, some of his best friends, now support Absalom. And so when David prays this prayer, he's on the run from his own son. Disaster, crisis, change, whatever you want to call it, it seems to spark up in the least likely of places doesn't it? I mean, the very nature of trouble is that it kind of comes unexpectedly in a place we weren't looking. Otherwise, we would have been prepared and it wouldn't have been so troublesome. But trouble, trouble can be the schoolmaster to show us the appropriate posture of prayer. If we'll learn from David, one whom God himself says is a man after his own heart, we'll come to see the two necessary conditions for prayer and the outstanding result when we embrace him. The two necessary conditions of prayer and the outstanding result when we come to embrace them. And the first condition necessary for prayer is helplessness. Helplessness. It's that feeling, that awareness that when you look within yourself or you look at those or the situation around you and you realize, I can't do this on my own. I was having lunch a couple weeks ago, and 
you know, the food came out. We were having some pho up in River Market, and we prayed over the food, and afterwards, the guy sitting across the table said, I, I can't remember the last time I prayed, even over, even over a meal. He's talking to a pastor. He knows the question's coming, right? And I said, well, what's going on in your life? What's going on in your heart? And he said, look, I, I know I should pray. I know it's probably a good thing for me to pray. But every morning I've been waking up recently and I thought, I could probably do this on my own. I can probably do this. If God weren't to step in and, into my day, I could probably go through the motions and everything will be fine. And that's what I've been doing. You see, if you don't believe you're helpless, you won't pray. You won't pray. And look at how David starts his prayer here in Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David feels helpless. And he's a bit overwhelmed by the many, many, many. Notice the repetition of this word three times in these first two verses. And it's almost like every phrase, his blood pressure rises. (laughs) Because the first time is the recognition that there are many foes out there. The second line, he comes to realize that those many foes are actively pursuing his ill. And then the third line, as he's come to realize that there are many out there who think that, this, that, that God's actually behind this, that God has abandoned David, that he's abandoned his promises to, to David. And the story comes in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. We come to this guy named Shimei. He's the kind of guy who liked things the way they were before David showed up on the scene. He really liked the way Saul had things going. And so when David comes with all of his soldiers and they're running from Jerusalem, Shimei begins throwing stones at David and his soldiers. And he starts yelling at him as if he's cut him off in traffic. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, we read Shimei scream at David, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, David's soldiers are with him. Hey, you're not going to talk to my king like that. They're about to take this dude out. And David stays their swords. And listen to how he responds in 2 Samuel 16, verses 11 and 12. Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David feels helpless. You know, it's one thing to be outnumbered, outsmarted, outranked by your own son. And as much as David tries to keep these words at bay, it's really hard to unhear violent words spoke to you, yeah? It's hard to run from tormenting thoughts because they show up in the most least likely, the least likely of places. You're out emptying your groceries. You're getting coffee at work. You're putting your kids to bed. You're mowing the lawn. You know, you're cleaning up your loft, and then boom, you're worthless. You're a lost cause. Even God's going to forget his promises to you. Who do you think you are? 
And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, he says, it's the most bitter of afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God, to think that we're so far gone that not even God can help us out. But right here, amidst all of this, David displays amazing vulnerability. And he brings it all, even his doubts, to God in prayer. You see, at the very base, prayer is a recognition that you're in trouble and that you're helpless in that trouble before God. But who are we trying to kid? (laughs) None of us likes to be helpless. I don't want to be the damsel in distress. You know, I want to be the knight in shining armor. I want to teach my son to be the knight in shining armor, right? But we're all in trouble, and we're all in over our heads, and we can try to tell ourselves that we can fake it till we make it. Or some of us in here, we know we're helpless, but in the area in which we feel helpless, there's so much shame that we would rather be seen as strong, but inside be slowly wasting away than admit that we're helpless. And so we climb back up on our high horse, And we look way more often like the Black Knight from Monty Python, a bloody stump of a man without a leg to stand on saying, it's just a flesh wound. (laughs) I'm invincible. No, you're not. We're helpless. We're helpless. You know, the structure of this psalm is really beautiful. And so often we run to the content and and completely miss how the content has been organized. You see, there's one word that shows up three times in this psalm and shows up multiple times across the Psalter. It's the word selah, selah. As you saw depicted even in the reading of the scripture this morning, it's a moment to pause, to let the words that I've just read soak in, and often comes with the idea of a musical interlude. It's a place where we slow down and we don't speed read through the prayer, but we sit and let the prayer work on us, where David's story becomes our story, where David's helplessness is slowly becoming recognized as our helplessness. And when we sit in the Selah, when we hear the many and the many and the many's going on in our lives, we can't help but hear that these are our words as well. Now, we may be tempted to think, but you don't understand, Gabe. God helps those who help themselves. Hezekiah chapter 5, you know. But that's not found anywhere in Scripture. Hezekiah is not even a book. He was a kind of a good king, for those of you who don't know. Kind of. But here's the deal. Until we start to admit that we're in trouble and admit that we're helpless in the face of that trouble, we'll never understand what it means to commune with God. Isaac Beshevis Singer, the Nobel Prize author, he got it right when he said, I only pray when I'm in trouble. (laughs) But I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. (laughs) That's the truth. That rings home, doesn't it? When we think we can navigate our life without God's divine intervention, then we've we've begun to believe our own illusions, our own lies. And we're not paying attention to what's really going on in our hearts, what's really going on in our relationships, what's really going on in the wider spheres of influence in which we've been placed. You see, it's only here, after we learn the vulnerability of David, to be able to admit that we're in trouble and that we're helpless in the face of that trouble, will we ever be able to authentically make the turn in prayer that we find here in Psalm 3, verse 3. Look with me. But you, O Lord, 
are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You see, helplessness, it causes us, it forces us to look for help outside of ourselves. It forces us to to transition from the many minis, the many frustrations, the many anxieties, the many work issues, the many, you know, antagonistic relationships, and now focus on the one true God who comes to offer salvation, rest, to be a shield about us. The Lord is the shield for David, the one who protects David no matter what this world can throw at him. The Lord is his glory, his power, the best thing about him. The Lord is the one who lifts up his countenance. The deep recesses of our heart that are downcast, that no one else can touch, only God can dive in and bring joy and a semblance of peace. But you, O Lord, you are my shield, my glory, and are the lifter of my head. You see, there are always problems that are bigger than us, moments where we feel absolutely out of control. And it's in those moments we look to the one who is bigger still. So how's your prayer life going? Is it kind of dull? Has it started to slow down? Have you lost interest? Until you admit your helplessness in the face of trouble, you'll never come asking for help. Prayer will be an extra, not necessary in your walk with Christ. Now, the second necessary condition of the heart for prayer is fear. Fear. Stick with me, okay? See, knowing you're in a helpless place is one thing, but to be terrified is completely other. It takes it up a notch, doesn't it? And look at what David responds with in verse four. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried aloud. This word aloud is synonymous with thunder. It's the palms sweaty, pupils dilated, for the Stoics among us, okay, you're not, out, you're not off the hook. It's the anxious heart that's hidden underneath the calm and collected surface. You see, prayer isn't first and foremost about having the right and perfect words all organized and formulated, this nice and neat poem, although we do have that here. You see, when fear enters our lives, prayer gets downright messy and raw, and that's okay. You know, when I was around eight or nine years old, We had these woods in our backyard, and I used to go climbing trees, falling out of trees, getting stitches for falling out of trees. You know, the things the little boys would do, and I was going down a familiar path in my own imaginative world (laughs) until reality hit. This snake, some seven to ten feet away from me, slithers onto the path. I hate snakes. Still do, probably because of this episode. And he just stops, and he stares at me. I think it's a he. He looked very masculine. And he stared at me. And I became paralyzed from the chin down. All I could do was scream and scream and scream. And then the waterworks came, you know. And I'm just screaming in the middle of the woods. I can't move. And the snake is darn near stubborn. It won't move either until finally five to ten minutes later, which felt like an eternity, especially for an eight or nine-year-old. My sister comes running in the woods, grabs my arm and yells, run! And so we run. And I don't look back until I'm underneath my covers in my bedroom, you know? Now imagine David. He's in the middle of the wilderness of Judah. He's on the run for his life from his own son. 
Not only is he wondering about what his life will come to or what the kingdom will come to, but he loves his son, Absalom. We see this in the story time and time again. This is his boy. And now he's out to get him and to take his life. And he doesn't want to take his life, but he doesn't know what to do. And he's sitting there in great distress and fear, and he cries out to God. And although he doesn't necessarily focus first and foremost on having the right words all nice and neat and categorized, he does ensure that he comes to the right God. It's not some willy-nilly response to a big guy in the sky who remains nameless. But instead he cries out to Yahweh. You see this here in our prayer in the word LORD in all caps. That's God's personal name. David knows who this God is, the one true God who created heaven and earth, the one true God who heard the cries of the Israelites in bondage back in Egypt and brought the plagues to bring deliverance from an oppressive regime, the one true God who parted the Red Sea, the one true God who led his people with a pillar of fire by day and a pillar, or a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The one true God who, bringing his people to the promised land, caused the walls of Jericho to come crumbling down. The one true God who promised David that his throne will stand. And so David comes, and he cries out to a God who is wholly other. I mean, even his presence transforms a hill into a holy hill. It was just a hill, but then God shows up and it's different than anything else. Only God can do that. And his magnificence and who he is. Back in Psalm 2, we see that that holy hill is Mount Zion. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence. And David, he feels far from God because he's far from Mount Zion. And yet he cries out to his holy hill, the holy God. And God answers him. And strategically in our psalm, in this prayer, comes the second Selah. God answers. God answers. And all of his holiness, when we feel like he is far away, when we feel all alone, when we feel like he's given up on us, God answers. God answers his people when they cry out. But now for the million-dollar question. <laughs> How? How does God answer? I mean, if I'm entering into prayer, I want to know how God's going to do this in my life. And God answers in the most shockingly simple of ways in this psalm. It doesn't necessarily fit the categories of Hollywood, but it's beautiful. Look with me at verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord Sustain me. We've all know the pain of sleepless nights, whether it be stuttering, studying over an exam <laughs> that's coming the next day. Uh, for those of you who have children waiting up late because they didn't come back on time from a party, you know. Um, for those of us going through labor or expecting this new kid into your life or going for a job search that never resolves in a job, a work project that never seems to work itself out, a relationship that comes with all of its angst and just doesn't seem to jive. Amidst everything that's going on in David's life, God grants David sleep, which is a miracle in and of itself. But then he wakes up again, and the lesson isn't lost on him. Something happens. 
Now David feels God's presence with him. Something happens where he felt first isolated and alone, but now he feels God's protecting presence with him. And I want you to listen. This is really crucial. In the first prayer that we find in a book of prayers, listen how God answers. It's not in the fanfare and what we would many times call miraculous. He doesn't feed David's soldiers, you know, with two loaves and three fishes. He doesn't part a Red Sea or bring the plagues on Absalom and Jerusalem. Actually, Absalom is still on the throne. David's enemies are still reigning. David isn't on the throne. And yet in all this, God answers David's prayer by showing him how he has been and how he is sustaining him. Isn't it amazing that God sustains us in our sleep? We so often wake up with the alarm clock going off as if it's a given rather than a gift. Thinking, oh, well, of course, this is just the way things go. Instead of realizing how God has been protecting, guiding, and sustaining us for how many hours of unconsciousness. Think about it. When you go to sleep, you become unconscious, pretty much dead to the world, out of control, and yet your heart still pumps, your lungs still function, your bodily organs continue on. And when God designed us and he designed our existence, he crafted into our daily rhythms four, six, eight, nine hours (laughs) of sleep where we remember that we're helpless, that we're not in control, that he has to be or we'll never wake up. And if he can sustain us every day in the midst of the night, How much will he sustain us throughout the difficulties of the daylight? This is what God reveals to David. Not a miraculous firework, but something God's already been doing and answering his prayer before he even cried out. You see, so often we go looking for results in prayer out there when we come to God. God, if you just change my boss... If you'll change my spouse, God, will you work on my kids? Um, (laughs) Work on my financial situation. If you'll just do that out there, come on. But more often than not, the first work that God does is in here, behind the closed doors of our hearts. When we become helpless and vulnerable and afraid, it's there that God brings an outstanding result. Trust. Trust. Trust in the face of trouble. Trust in the face of helplessness. Trust in the face of our worst fears. Trust in such a way that only God can cultivate and work within us. And this trust breaks in in the middle of David's prayer. Look with me at verse six. I will not be afraid. He started off fearful. He started off crying out as loud as thunder. But now I will not be afraid of many thousands. There's another many of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And his cry of desperation turns into a battle cry. His fear turns to confidence, but not in himself. That the victory must come in God and God alone going before him in the midst of his worst fears. The first great work of God in prayer is God causing a transition within us 
from no longer focusing on how I can't to now focusing on how he will. To move from focusing on our helplessness to now focusing on God's help. To seeing God for who he really is, an ever-present help in time of need. This is the cycle of prayer. The vulnerability of helplessness, admitting our fears, crying out, and then God cultivating trust within us that he will go before. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably wondering, okay, now how does this change anything in my life? (laughs) And I want to first start by saying something contra to what Jim Gaffigan said earlier. If you haven't been engaged in prayer for a while and you find yourself either in an existential crisis or a wider crisis, if you come crying out to God, he's not going to mock you. He's not going to say, well, well, well. (laughs) That's not who our God is. So don't let shame keep you from crying out. Whatever it is, however long it has been, whatever the crisis, cry out. And I want you to try something this week. Every morning when you wake up and that alarm clock goes off and you either snooze on your iPhone or you've still got a physical alarm clock, I want you to first pray, God, show me. 30 seconds. may not even take that. God, show me. Show me my helplessness today. When your alarm clock goes off and you've spent four, six, eight, twelve, some of you, hours of sleep, and God sustained you through those moments, wake up and say, God, show me my fears that I've been running from, that I'm terrified to look at, that I'm terrified to be honest about. Because if you won't be vulnerable, if you won't be honest about your fears, be honest about your trouble that you're in, your helplessness, you'll never learn to trust anyone let alone God, and you'll never find rest from your fear. You'll never know what it means for God to sustain you in the midst of your helplessness. And after you've done that, praying, God, show me. God, show me my helplessness. Show me my fears. Then in that minute to two minutes, while you're still snuggled up underneath your covers, (laughs) pray, God, save me. When you see your helplessness and you see your fears, he won't leave you there. Save me from myself, my destructive habits I see within me, the things that I know behind closed doors that I'm wrestling with, that I'm ashamed to mention to anyone. God, God, save me from others, gossip, the attacks of reputation, and the brokenness of this world. God, save me. So God, show me. God, save me. Two minutes underneath the covers within your bed after you hit the alarm clock. Because hear this this morning, trouble trouble is the crucible that trains us in understanding the necessary heart conditions for prayer. And only when we enter trouble are we able to authentically say with David when he gets to Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to who? To the Lord. Not you, not me, not your boss, Not your spouse, not that girlfriend, that boyfriend, that idea of a girlfriend or boyfriend, not your social status, not that next promotion. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's where the people are blessed, is when we come to that realization and we rest in that with confidence. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever trouble you're going through, become helpless. Admit your fears. And isn't that what it means to be a Christian? 
to admit that we're helpless, to admit that we are terrified, but by God's grace that he would break into our world and save us. And what's amazing is to what great lengths God has gone to make that salvation freely available to us. This holy God in all his majesty that transforms the very landscape that he touches condescends and enters into humanity and enters our trouble. And then he climbs another hill and makes it all the more holy, the Mount of Crucifixion. And he dies and he pays the penalty for guilty sinners, you and I, that when we were helpless and should be rightfully terrified of the judgment that is to come because of our rebellion against God, God himself becomes the just and the justifier, stepping in our place, paying our penalty, and now offering salvation to all who will admit their helplessness and come with their fears and say salvation belongs to no other name but Jesus. It's why we pray in his name. That in one name, we admit we're helpless. In one name, we admit we need God to defeat our enemies. We need God to step into our lives. Without Jesus, we have no hope. And so in prayer, in this moment, we come acknowledging our helplessness in the midst of trouble, presenting our fears, sometimes raw and messy, and letting God train us to trust him. Because even after the cross, three days later, God sustained Jesus and he rose again, such that even when we face death, we can say, I will trust you to sustain me, God. Nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. Admit your helplessness. Surrender your fears. And let God teach you to trust him one prayer at a time. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we come to you, we use the words of the psalmist to even guide our prayers. We enter in and know that the trouble that we find ourselves in, the many frustrations, the many pain, the many sins that saturate everything we do, God, we're helpless in the face of our trouble. But you, O Lord, you're the only sturdy shield. You are our beautiful glory, the only one who has the power to lift our countenance. And so, God, as we remember how you've sustained us even now, that we are able to come and gather in the name of Jesus, we cry out in the name of Jesus. And so, with confidence, we face our fears because you've gone before us. Although we know we are helpless, we know you are our help. And so, God, arise. Go before us. Salvation belongs to you and the beauties of the gospel proclaimed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May you bless your people. Amen.